0: Psalm 1 in your Bibles. We normally read, I normally read the text of the morning message. I'm not doing that this morning. Instead, I want to read with you Psalm 1 in your Bibles. We'll do something else a little bit different that uh, we don't normally do. We'll read responsively. We haven't done that in a long time. Psalm 1. I'll read the first verse, the odd-numbered verses, 1, 3, and 5. And you can join with me. On the even, verses 2, 4, and 6, okay? First song in Israel's songbook, Psalm number 1, the Bible says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chap which the wind driveth away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Gospel of Luke, chapter 22 in your Bibles. Luke, chapter 22. You know, a lack of reasoned intelligence may seem insignificant in advance. Maybe everything will work out okay. Maybe it won't be too bad. Maybe. But when reality devastates, one wonders what were you thinking? And such has filled the 24-7 news cycle over the last week. And we're still stunned in disbelief over what America did regarding Afghanistan. But is that merely a small-scale model of what mankind has done regarding underestimating the awfulness of sin and ignoring its horrendous consequences? Do we really give serious thought to what God's intelligence has plainly spelled out for thousands of years? The bottom line up front on your worksheet, sermon worksheet this morning, is two simple words sin crushes. Sin crushes. The intelligence is plain. The intelligence is clear, and for thousands of years God has told His created world that sin crushes. We can can ignore the reasoned intelligence of God and think that maybe it won't be that bad. Maybe everything will work out okay. But when good intelligence is ignored... Sometimes we wake up to say, what in the world was I thinking? To not believe the intelligence that was laid out clearly in advance. And that's the way it is with God and His intelligence. He has laid out clearly for thousands of years that sin crushes. But the question is, what do we do with that intelligence? Do we ignore it? Do we minimize it? Do we say maybe it won't be that bad? Do we just make up our own minds what we want to do? Jesus has just finished his upper room time with the apostles. They sang a hymn at the end of all that he taught them in the upper room that night. And they slipped out into the dark of night, probably approaching or just past midnight. The town of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem is quiet. People are in bed. Jesus and his eleven apostles now, Judas had already left. Jesus and his eleven apostles slip out into the darkness of the night. They wander through the city streets and they cross the Kidron Valley and they go up into the Mount of Olives. There is across the Kidron Valley and up the slopes of the Mount of Olives. It was called the Mount of Olives because it was a mountain of olive trees, a thick grove of olive trees, a commercial operation uh, with olive press and, and maybe multiple olive presses. And there were no street lights. It's in the middle of the night. It is dark. It's forested. It's in the woods and Jesus Christ slips into the Mount of Olives, up the slopes of the Mount of Olives with His 11, His 11 apostles. Our focus today is on this garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. There with this olive grove and this olive press in Jesus' day. Let's look and see what it looked like. Where it was at least, not specifically what it looked like, but where it is, just so you can fix in your mind Where this was occurring, city of Jerusalem, temple platform, the area of the city, somewhere in that area, Jesus and the apostles had spent Passover evening observing the Passover meal in an upper room. They left, they wandered through the streets, they came, they crossed the Kidron Valley, and they came up the slope of the Mount of Olives, that grove of trees. The next slide kind of gives a little bit of an artist's depiction of what it would have looked like in Jesus' day. This would be a picture of the temple platform as it existed in Jesus' day, and Herod's temple that was on the temple platform. And then the Kidron Valley, and then in the foreground, uh, as the slope came up to the Mount of Olives there was this massive olive grove, this, this grove of olive trees and the olive press where they would press the oil from the olive. In this next picture, we see if you were there today, if you went to Israel today and you were standing on the temple platform area looking across to the Mount of Olives, you would see a religious building, a Christian religious building. It's called the Church of the Agony. Uh, it has an uh, enclosed... Area Right here enclosed by stone wall and buildings and in that enclosed area they have some ancient olive trees believed by many to have regrown from the roots of the olive trees that were there in Jesus day. Olive trees reproduce through its root system sending up shoots. We know from the historian Josephus that in 70 AD the Roman armies cut down every tree around Jerusalem. So we know all the olive trees were cut down in 70 A.D. But those olive trees would have recreated that grove of olive trees from its root systems. And some of these trees give the appearance and are believed by some to be the reforesting of the Mount of olives from the roots of the olive trees in Jesus' day. If you were to go there, you would go into that walled enclosure and here's what you would see if you went in there. I know it's hard. By the way, our projector is officially in the United States. <laughs> we are patiently waiting. They keep buying on another week, another week, another week. They, they are telling us it's going to be on the East Coast sometime this week. And so maybe, maybe within a couple of weeks we'll have our new projector in. I apologize for how difficult it is to see. But these olive trees, ancient olive trees throughout the Garden of Gethsemane, or the uh, what is known as the Garden of Gethsemane today, uh, where uh, people go and see what the olive trees look like and, and stand on the very ground where Jesus Christ and the 11 apostles took uh, the, uh, their apostles up. If you were, this next screen shows if you were standing looking from the, these olive trees, this grove of olive trees, and you were looking back to the temple platform, you can see it's just over the valley. As the land goes down into the Kidron Valley and then comes back up as it goes up the Mount of Olives. Uh, this is the, the Garden of Gethsemane. The next screen, if you were to be, go there and visit, uh, in that area, it's hard to see, but there is a, a um, stone relief. Here's a little bit larger of Jesus Christ kneeling and just falling on a rock there, weeping in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, Pragya is trying to get the very best angle picture she can get, and uh, Raj is patiently waiting for her to get her picture. And uh, there, when our group was over a few years ago in the Garden of Gethsemane, the next picture just gives a little bit more of a close up of that of that um, relief that is there for people to be mindful of the most important event that happened in that. Garden of Gethsemane. You know, olives were Israel's most important, most significant crop. Olives and the oil that was pressed from the olive was used for food. It was used for their lighting, to light their lamps. It was used for lubrication. It was used on their skin. It was used medicinally in health care. It was used for ceremonial purposes in anointing with oil kings and, and people of, of, of a, that had been put in ministerial positions. And so uh, the the olive oil was a very significant uh, product of Israel, their most important product. Extracting the olive oil from the olives involved picking the olives, cracking or breaking the olives open, uh, breaking them down into a paste, and then crushing them to get the oil from that. This plays into a significant role on what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane this night. So I want you to watch a one minute, 14 second clip of Ray Vanderland explaining to a group in Israel how olive oil is
1: produced. ...industry of this town. When you finally got the olives, here's how you process them. You put the olives in this sea, it's called, yam, sea, like the Sea of Galilee sea. And then you take this large millstone with a stick through it, like this, fastened to a post in the middle and you would have a donkey or an animal grab a hold of the end of that stick and walk in a circle so that this huge stone rolled in here on the olives. You might walk around there for a few minutes just rolling those olives and what that would do to those black olives that were ripe is it would crack them. When they're finished cracking these olives they scoop them up and they put them into a bag. It looks a little bit like a burlap bag. They bring them over to this instrument large stone column here which they then lift up and they stack those bags of olives down here on this base and then they set this large stone pillar back down on the olives and they leave it stand there as that enormous weight begins to set down heavily on those olives after a few minutes that very precious oil begins to drip down into this groove and down into the pit where it's caught The key is the weight
0: of that stone that is put upon a stack of of burlap bags filled with crushed olives. And the weight of that stone sitting on that would gradually and slowly cause the oil to be pressed out of the olive. That precious, life-giving oil that would be pressed out of and squeezed out of the crushed olive. Olives. That stone is a Gethsemane. That's what the word Gethsemane means. It's made up of two words. One word is is uh, pressure. One is is olive. It's it's the pressure, the crushing, the pressure that would weigh down upon uh, the uh, the olives. The word Gethsemane means olive press. The pressing down of the olives. When we call this the Garden of Gethsemane, we call it the garden where there was an olive press. This was a big operation. They would pick their olives, they would crush their olives, breaking them up, putting them in bags, then putting a Gethsemane on top of the broken up olives. And that Gethsemane, the weight, the great weight created great pressure to crush and to squeeze the very life out of the olive to give them the precious oil that they required to live. What are the lessons coming out of this story of Jesus going into the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, there's four simple stories. The first story is a simple story. It's the story of Jesus' pattern of life. You're in your Bible at Luke chapter 22. I want to begin reading. We haven't read the text yet, so I want to begin reading in verse 39. Luke 22:39 the bible says that he came out and went as he was wont to the mount of olives and his disciples also followed him and when he was at the place he said unto them pray that ye enter not into temptation and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed saying father if thou be willing remove this cup from me Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. There appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up, he was come to his disciples. And when he rose up from prayer, he was come... To his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. Four stories. The first is a simple story. It's a simple story of Jesus' pattern of life. Verse 39 says, And he came out and went as he was wont. Do you notice that phrase, as he was wont? as was the pattern of his life, as he typically ordinarily did. Jesus was a prayer warrior. The simple story of Jesus' life was a pattern of prayer. His followers followed him to this place of quiet solitude, where in the middle of the night, in the blackness of the night, in this grove of olive trees, they could easily find a place to be alone. And Jesus Christ, as He was wont to, as His pattern of living was, He would find a secluded place where He could spend time in prayer. It was His custom to retire to this place of prayer. Whenever He was in Jerusalem, and He came to Jerusalem several times during His ministry, and He traveled back and forth between Jerusalem and Bethany, and He would go right up this This hill, this Mount of Olives, as he was leaving Jerusalem to go over uh, to Bethany, a couple of miles away. And as he was wont, he would take advantage of this secluded place to spend some time alone and to pray. For Jesus, prayer was like breathing. It's life, it's reaction to situations, it's constant and it's Continuous, it flows naturally out of a relationship. Isn't that what communication is? (laughs) If you have a relationship with someone, if they're meaningful to you, what flows naturally is to talk to them. And this was Jesus' normal pattern of life. He was a prayer warrior and often found secluded places to be able to talk to God the Father and pray. Simple story of the pattern of Jesus' life. Here's a second story that unfolds in this, in this uh, evening in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a serious story. It's Jesus' expectation of your life. His expectation of you. Verse number 40, And when He was at the place, He said unto them, the eleven apostles that were with Him, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. Jesus was going to pray because He was entering into the jaws of the greatest temptation of His entire life. His entire existence from eternity past. But the disciples, those eleven apostles, are also walking into the jaws of temptation. And Jesus had an expectation of them. His expectation of them was that they would do the same thing He does when He's entering into the jaws of temptation. And so He says to them, I want you to pray here in the Garden of Gethsemane tonight. Jesus instructed them to spend time that night in prayer because of the coming temptation. Temptation to sin, to doubt, to forsake. It's very real. He's already tipped off the apostles in the upper room. He, the Bible says that Jesus Christ told the apostles... That Satan hath desired you. And he used the plural pronoun you. Satan desires you, men, to put you in his sieve. And then he said to Peter, Peter, I prayed for thee. And by the way, he used the singular pronoun thee. The Bible's very clear. Careful, the V's and the V's are there for a purpose. They teach us the difference between the singular and the plural when Jesus is talking to a group versus when Jesus is talking to an individual. Those are important distinctions in our King James Version of the Bible. And so Jesus said to Peter, I have prayed for thee. You know why? Because Jesus didn't pray blanket prayers. God bless all of them. Just bless everybody. Heal all the sick. Save all the lost. Blank. When Jesus prayed, he said, Satan desires you But I have prayed for thee, Peter, because prayer is specific. Praying for people, for individuals, for situations. And Jesus Christ takes the apostles into the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus has an expectation that those 11 apostles are going to spread out in the Garden, and they're going to spend some time communicating with God the Father, because they're getting ready to go into the most horrendous experience of their life. And He has an expectation. It's a serious story of Jesus' expectation for His people to pray as they face extreme events. You understand that the guard at the door of your life designed to keep sin away is a vibrant prayer life. The doors that guard your life to keep sin out of your life is a vibrant prayer life. And Jesus expects Each of us as his children to have a vibrant prayer life, lest we succumb to temptation. And Jesus taught us when you pray, pray our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And what was the last topic he told us to pray about? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The fifth topic of prayer that Jesus told us to develop a prayer life around is to pray for God's help and strength at times of temptation in our lives. Jesus has an expectation of his followers. His expectation is that we be prayer warriors like he is a prayer warrior, that we be people who have guarding our lives to keep sin away, a vibrant prayer life that's powerful and important in our lives individually. He also expects that to be true of his churches. Remember that the two times in his ministry where his anger flared in the most demonstrable way was at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry, both in Jerusalem, both on the temple platform, both driving out the merchandisers from the temple platform and saying, This, my father's house, is a house of what? Prayer. Not a house of music. Although they sang and had choirs. Not a house of preaching. All they preached, they preached and taught the word of God. But the characteristic of Jesus Christ's house is that it be known for its vibrant prayer life corporately as a body of people. And they had desecrated God's house. And it was no longer a house of prayer. And Jesus' anger flared the most demonstrable way. Twice, both, about the lack of corporate prayer in his house. Jesus expects his followers to pray, and Jesus expects his churches to pray. Prayer is the heartbeat of power and energy and accomplishments and strength that drives everything in God's church. Without prayer, we're going through motions. There's a third story that comes out in this in this amazing time. The simple story is that Jesus was a man of prayer. The serious story is that Jesus expects us to be people of prayer individually and corporately, and the third story is a sobering story it's a sobering story about Jesus agony in the garden of Gethsemane. Our text in verse number forty one after he had told the disciples to pray and by the way, the um, Luke just gives an abbreviated Uh, description. Matthew and Mark both go into more details and how Jesus told the disciples to pray. He then went a stone's throw away. He prayed, came back, found them asleep, woke them up, told them to pray, went away, prayed again, came back, found them asleep again, woke them up, told them to pray, went back and prayed a, a third time, came back, and finally says, the enemy's at hand. And so, Luke just summarizes it all down. And He's told them to pray. And then verse number 41, He was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine. Be done. And in verse 44, And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is a sobering story. It's a sobering story of the agony that Jesus Christ experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, Jesus Christ was a serious person. The Bible never records that Jesus laughed. I believe he did laugh. I, I don't believe that. It doesn't say that he didn't laugh. It just never tells any experience or situation where he laughed. He wasn't a light-hearted individual. The 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 Chosen series has been extremely popular. I've watched all of them. I've enjoyed them immensely. However, they they have chosen the whoever produced it chose to create a personality for Jesus Christ that you won't find in the Bible. You find something very different in the Bible. Jesus Christ was a serious person. In Isaiah 53, the passage we looked at in the last message in this series, the Bible describes Jesus Christ, his personality, his life, as a man of sorrow acquainted with grief. That's God's biblical overriding umbrella description of the personality of Jesus Christ. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Mark three: five says he looked with anger, being grieved in the, for the hardness of their hearts. Mark 7:34. He looked up into heaven and sighed. Mark 8:12. He sighed deeply in his spirit. John 11:35. Jesus wept. Luke 13.34, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered thy children together? And ye would not. Luke 19.41, He beheld the city of Jerusalem and wept over it. And now in Luke 22, we find Him in the Garden of Gethsemane, broken in agony, weeping uncontrollably. Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane is experiencing the deepest agony of His entire existence as eternal God. Something is happening here that's never happened before. Something is going on here that is extreme. What's happening right now, Jesus is praying more earnestly than He'd ever prayed before. Mark's record, a little fuller than Luke's record, records, and he taketh with him Peter, James, and John. He took the eleven to the, uh, to the Mount of Olives, and then he left eight of them, and he took three of them, Peter, James, and John. They went further into the forest, and then he left them, and he went a stone's throw beyond them. And he began to be sore amazed, the Bible says. The, the, the word amazed, the phrase sore amazed, speaks of astonishment being affrighted, And he began to be sore amazed and be very heavy. The weight was bearing down upon him. The Gethsemane stone was crushing him in the garden of crushing. And Jesus Christ is very heavy. And he said, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. He said, the pressure, the weight, has pushed me physically as a man to the point that I'm hovering just above death. I'm at the point of collapsing and my heart giving way. Hebrews 5, 7 speaks of this very moment and says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication, with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. He was there talking to God the Father. If this cup could, could, if, could this cup pass from me? Talking to the one who had the power to deliver him from death. And he was talking to God with strong crying and tears, Hebrews tells us. Jesus is at the point of the greatest agony that he'd ever experienced in his eternal existence. The weight upon his heart is crushing him. He's hovering just above death. He's weeping uncontrollably. He's collapsing and falling prostrate on the ground. He is in severe agony. Remember, He took the apostles to the garden of crushing, the garden of Gethsemane. The text in Isaiah 53 that we read last week says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. You know what a bruise is? A bruise is when there's a crushing that releases blood into the the tissue. And then you have a bruise. When the Bible says He was bruised for our iniquities, it means He was crushed. He was pressed. Because of my sin, the pressure was extreme and horrendous. And the pressure pressing down upon Him, He was bruised. He was crushed for my iniquities. What was going on in the Garden of Gethsemane? Second Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin. The sinless, spotless, eternal God who had never thought an evil thought, who had never felt the taint of sin, who had never felt the dirtiness of sin. The one who knew no sin had to become sin. No, he was more than just writing the check to redeem, pay somebody else's bill. Write the check, it's no big deal. I've got the money in the bank. Write the check, walk away. No! No, 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 no. He became sin! He was bruised. For our iniquities. Jesus Christ prayed in verse 42 of our text, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. What is this? Remove this cup from me. Is he a coward? Is he shying away? Does he not want to endure the pain of the crucifixion? In the book of Revelation, the Bible creates a word picture using a cup or a vial or a bowl as a, a container containing the judgments of God. And God sends the angel with the vial or the bowl and they, he pours out the judgment of God upon a rejecting world. Jesus Christ said, if, if it's possible that this cup might pass, what is the cup? It's the container. It's a word Picture of the container of the judgment of God that was being poured out upon his very soul as he became sin that I might have the opportunity to be made the righteousness of God in him. What is this? Jesus Christ is anticipating becoming sin. Earlier in the upper room, Jesus Christ took the cup with the fruit of the vine in it. He said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood or the new covenant in my blood which is given for you. The cup contained the shed blood, the poured out blood, the bruised as the Gethsemane pressed down on the olives to the, the horrendous pressure, the horrendous stress, until finally the olive oil trickled out into a container. The cup was the cup of a new agreement that God would make with man, where Jesus would be crushed under the weight of God's judgment, bringing out the very lifeblood. And Jesus Christ said every time the church meets together and observes the Lord's Supper, this cup is the new covenant, the new testament in my blood. Jesus Christ says if this cup can pass from me, I, I, I don't want to become sin. The the judgment of God upon the sin that Jesus Christ was anticipating becoming. He's wrestling with the coming judgment of God as He bears my sin. He's struggling to the extreme at the brink of death as He enters the jaws of temptation. He had told the disciples that they needed to pray lest they enter into temptation. He's praying because he's entering into temptation. But I want you to understand that the temptation that the disciples will enter into and the temptation that Jesus is entering into are polar opposites. What's in this cup? What is Jesus feeling such strain, such pressure? What is it that's so heavy that it's crushing Him? What is it that Jesus so abhors? Jesus is holy God and sinless man in His incarnation. And I am sinful man. I am tempted to hold on to my sin. Jesus was being tempted to hold on to His holiness and not become sin. Polar opposites. Satan tempts me to hold on to my sin and not come to righteousness. Satan tempted Jesus to hold on to righteousness and not become sin. Jesus was abhorred at the thought of becoming sin. Of taking my place. Not just writing a check to pay my sin debt. Becoming my sin. Unholy impulses reside in me. But only holy impulses resided in Jesus Christ. I struggle because the power of evil is strong in me. But Jesus struggled because the power of holiness was strong in Him. How could He bear becoming sin? He was holy, eternal God. It was abhorrent to even contemplate becoming sin. He agonized. Jesus from eternal past had known only the power of holiness. Every thought, every word, every deed was only holy. Holy. And I struggle against three driving powers. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Jesus struggled against three all-consuming impulses. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, He had heard from eternity past as the angelic beings hovered around His throne declaring Him to be holy, holy, holy. Jesus Christ, holiness. Jesus Christ, in all of his perfections, is contemplating becoming you. Becoming me. And he's tempted to hold on to his holiness and not become filthy dirty with your sin. I struggle to abandon sin and embrace holiness Jesus was struggling with the need to abandon holiness so that he could embrace my sin. Sin was so repulsive to him. He's fighting against holy impulses in order to be made sin. Satan tempts me to embrace sin while Satan tempts Jesus to embrace holiness and reject my sin. Satan always tempted Jesus to embrace what he had the right to keep for himself. There after the wilderness uh, uh, fast in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry, Satan came to him and said, Cling to the right. You have the right to be satisfied with food. Cling to your own right. Make some bread. Cling to your own right to be acknowledged as the Messiah. Leap off the top corner of the temple enclosure and let the angels catch you in midair and bring you down so that everyone will know you're the Messiah. You have a right to that. Jump! You have a right to have all the kingdoms bow at your feet. If you'll bow at my feet, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world without having to become sin. Satan always tempted Jesus to cling to what he had the right to in his person. And Jesus is struggling. He has the right to be holy. He has the right to stay holy. He hates sin. He abhors the thought of dirt. He doesn't want your dirt on his life. And he's struggling with holding on to holiness instead of becoming sin for you and I. Jesus fought against holy impulses while I fight against sinful impulses. We fight to hold on to God. Jesus fought to let go of God. We fight to be joined to God. Jesus fought because He didn't want to be separated from God. No, Jesus was not struggling with drinking the cup of God's judgment because of cowardice, because the pain was going to be too great. No, He was struggling because He abhors the dirtiness of sin. He's wrestling with temptation. Through prayer, He's wrestling And He recommends His disciples, even though their temptation is polar opposites from His temptation, He advises His apostles to handle their temptation the same way He's handling His. A vibrant prayer life that will help you in times of temptation. In this garden of Gethsemane, my sin begins to press the life out of Jesus. The great Gethsemane stone of the weight of my sin, begins to bear down on the body and soul of Jesus Christ. He begins to anticipate what it's going to be like to be crushed and to actually become filthy. The person who had never done any wrong. And he's going to become the most vile, wicked, loathsome sin that you can imagine. And he hates the thought of losing holiness and becoming sin for man. He feels the extreme weight, the pressure, the pain of being made my sin. The eternally spotless becoming filthy. The one untainted by even the slightest sin becoming the vilest of all of my sin I ever committed. The weight was becoming unbearable. The tension and pressure was increasing. His pulse quickened. His skin became clammy. Breathing became labored. Panic was setting in. He fell prostrate on the ground. He struggled up and and struggled a little further and fell on the ground. Over and over again in the garden of Gethsemane. The weight of my sin and His willingness to bear the weight of my sin. Became so palatable to him. He said, I feel like I'm about to die. And he wept uncontrollably in the garden of the weight of a Gethsemane stone, crushing him, bruising him as he anticipated taking my sin. The awareness of the withdrawing father the awful reality of abandonment by His eternal coequal. Psalm 22 that describes all of the various sufferings that Jesus endured. It wasn't the physical suffering that was mentioned first. It wasn't the emotional suffering of the mockery that was listed first. Psalm 22 opens with Jesus crying out, My God, my God, why? Why have you turned your back on Me? We have eternally been in fellowship. We have eternally been at one with one another. And Jesus is beginning to feel the pressure, the weight, the tension, the stress of His eternal co-equal God the Father turning His back and rejecting Him. As he would become my sin for me. And it is so horrendous that he's at the brink of death. Verse 44 says, it was so horrendous that sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, were not just beating up on his forehead. They were falling to the ground. It, it's a medical condition. It's, it's a known occurrence. It's called hematuria. It's, it's when a person is under such severe stress and strain. When a person is under such severe anxiety and the pressure and the strain and all that has happened can actually cause the capillaries to burst and release blood into the sweat glands, mixing with the sweat. And then as the sweat pours comes through the pores, it, it becomes A mixture of sweat and blood. So it's a bloody looking sweat. And the Bible says that the tension, the pressure, the stress, the anxiety, the weight of the Gethsemane of my sin crushing him, bruising him, breaking him. Physically, his capillaries began to burst Sweat began to flow freely from the pores, not just beat it up on his brow, but running down his face, drenching his clothes, dropping onto the ground. He was a sweaty, bloody mess. All because of the tension of becoming sin for me. Alone, Jesus was pressed by my sin. Alone, He cried to the Father and shared His deep agony with the Father. Alone, He expressed His being repulsed by the horror of becoming sin and being abandoned by His Father. And alone, He declared His willingness to go through all of that and to drink the cup that He might establish a new covenant with His creation. A covenant that would offer them forgiveness, that offer them hope, that would offer them heaven through His shed blood on Calvary only a few hours away from the garden of Gethsemane. That brings me to a final story. It's a stunning story. It's a stunning story. Verse number 43 says, and there appeared an angel. It's a stunning story. Jesus' helper shows up. This is This amazing. Do you realize that there are only two times during the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ that angels showed up to help him? What does God need help for? What does Jesus need an angel for? He's God. What does he need help for? Two times angels showed up. One was at the temptation in the wilderness after Satan had tempted Him to claim what was rightfully His without the cross. And the second time was here in the Garden of Gethsemane when Satan had tempted Him to hold on to His holiness and not drink the cup. And twice, God dispatched an angel to come to Jesus' side and help Him. In the... In the horrible moment that he was enduring under the temptation of Satan. Our text says that the angel came strengthening him. The word strengthening, a synonym for strengthening, is one of the synonyms is invigorating. Invigorating him. Helping him to overcome the awful, horrendous stress and pressure he had gone through. And the angel comes and invigorates him. Dr. George Matheson said every life has its Gethsemane and every Gethsemane has its angels. I'm, I'm glad for that. Do you understand what, what is happening when, when God dispatched an angel to help Jesus? You understand that God is doing for Jesus what he promises to do for you. Only you need an angel a whole lot more often than Jesus needed angels. Because you're not God. Hebrews chapter 1, the Bible says, But to which of the angels said it, he at any time, Sit on my right hand till I make thy enemies thy footstool. He was comparing angels to Jesus. And Jesus was far above angels. And then he describes angels. He says in verse 14, Are they, the angels, not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to them who shall be the heirs of salvation? God dispatches angels to those who are saved. To minister to those who are the inheritors of salvation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. As at the end of the book of Hebrews, the Bible says, you know, sometimes we have actually entertained angels unawares. There are actually times in your life where God sends an angel, they materialize, they look like a human being. They help you through a, a time of great disaster. And you, you go about your business and they disappear. And God says, we have entertained angels not even knowing it. I wonder how many times an angel's come to help you and you didn't even know it was an angel. And afterwards they disappeared and you didn't realize it and, and you had entertained an angel unawares. God takes care of those whom he loves. And he took care of Jesus. It is a stunning story when Jesus' helper shows up. What do you do with the truths in a message like this? Three things at the bottom of your little page there. Feel the weight of what Jesus did for you. Never read the story of the Garden of Gethsemane the same again. Feel the pressure of that huge stone a Gethsemane pressing down to squeeze the lifeblood out of an olive. Feel the stress of what Jesus Christ did for you. When he wrestled with the horrendous thought of becoming sin. Enter into his emotional trauma. And if you've never been saved, realize he did that to rescue you from hell. He did that because he was willing to go through that becoming your sin and bearing the judgment of God so that he could freely offer you salvation. If you've never been saved, feel the weight and the emotional trauma of what Jesus did and realize He did that because He loves you and He wants to save you. And if you are saved, just feel the great deep love of Jesus Christ. Number two, pray. Live like Jesus. Jesus faced temptation on His knees in prayer, emotionally involved, horrendously involved. To the point that he almost died in the garden. To the point that his capillaries burst and he sweat bloody sweat. Jesus' prayer life was intense. Pray so that you can have a vibrant prayer life keeping sin out of your life. And number three, soak up the joy that flows from the reality that God dispenses angels to minister to you when you're in trouble. So whatever your trouble, whatever your situation in life, whatever the extingency is that has got your back against the wall, take heart that if it gets bad enough, Jesus will dispatch an angel to come to your side and to help you in the time of your greatest need. Feel the trauma of God taking your sin. Pray. That you can keep sin away from your life and soak up the joy of knowing how much God takes care of those whom he loves.